You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Walker webcast. It's a real joy to have Carolyn joining me today. Her book, CEO Excellence, is truly excellent, and I would recommend it to anyone who wants to learn what makes talented CEOs and outperforming companies so special, whether you are an investor, an employee, a leader, a manager, or someone just beginning your career with the aspiration of being a CEO one day. And one of my questions to Carolyn in a little bit will be any advice to aspiring leaders on what to do and how to work and live to have a shot at a C-suite role someday. But before I begin with Carolyn's bio, one thank you and one request to our listeners. A thank you is to Carolyn's and my mutual friend, Gary Pincus, who is a fellow partner of Carolyn's at McKinsey and put the two of us together. Thank you, Gary. And the request of our listeners, not to the several thousand live listeners today, nor the podcast listeners, but to the 50 to 100,000 people who will watch this on replay on YouTube. If you go to the lower left-hand corner of the screen and just gives us a thumbs up or a thumbs down, uh, it'd be helpful. Um, We have a net promoter score at Walker & Dunlop of 89, uh, which is exceedingly high. And it's due to getting feedback from our clients after every transaction we work on to see if they would recommend us to either a colleague or to another company to work with Walker and Dunlop. And that feedback is what makes us better and better. And so any feedback on the Walker webcast by a thumbs up or a thumbs down would be greatly appreciated. So let me dive into uh, Carolyn's bio. Carolyn Dewar founded and co-leads McKinsey's CEO Excellence Work, coaching many Fortune 100 CEOs to maximize their effectiveness. She also works extensively with clients to drive organizational effectiveness at pivotal moments, such as mergers, strategic shifts, and crises, and lead large-scale performance improvement programs, integrating strategic, operational, and cultural initiatives. In addition to her direct work with clients, Carolyn conducts ongoing research. Among her many articles are two of the most read McKinsey quarterly articles of all time, the CEO's role in leading transformation and the irrational side of change management. She has also authored two foundational publications, Performance Culture Imperative, A Hard-Nosed Approach to the Soft Stuff, and Breaking New Ground, Making a Successful Transition into Your New Executive Role. She is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence, The Six Mindsets That Distinguish the Best Leaders from the Rest. Carolyn is a Canadian and British citizen and currently lives in San Francisco with her two children and her husband. She is a board trustee of Bay Area Discovery Museum and has a master's degree in economics and international relations from the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. So there we go. Let's dive in here, Carolyn. You created very specific parameters for how to determine the best CEOs in your book, CEO Excellence. And in a moment, I'd like you to briefly outline how you determine that excellence. But to start, you and your colleague, Scott and Vic, identified the top 200 CEOs and then interviewed 70 of them for your book. Who was the most impressive and why? 
That's a super question. I mean, it was an incredible privilege to sit down one-on-one for several hours each with these unbelievable leaders. Many of them are household names, right? And of course, impressive. We had Satya Nadella, Jamie Dimon, Mary Barra, all of these household names. I think some of the ones that stuck out for me were the ones who were equally impressive, but lesser known, right? I'm thinking of a Doug Baker at Ecolab or some of the other leaders. And those hidden gems are what got me excited as well. So I want to back up to where this book began, because the genesis of your book and the fantastic shareholder returns of Walker and Dunlop both come from the same place, which is the Inn at Perry Cabin in St. Michael's, Maryland. I'm going to quickly give you my anecdote, and then I'd like you to rewind back to your anecdote of how you and your colleague Scott and Vic came up with the idea for this book, and then what the criteria was to get into the book. But real quickly on mine. 2007 Young President's Organization retreat. A gentleman named Jack Daly was there to give a speech to us. And he was talking about all these things that CEOs need to think about. And the one thing he said was, if you are not telling your team where you are going, you are failing as a CEO. And he said, you can manage the company well, you can do in this and that. But if you haven't said and articulated a clear vision for where the organization goes, you're not doing your job. So I left that retreat. I went back to Washington, D.C. I sat down and I wrote a memo to my board and I said, I failed you. And Walker and Dunlop had been doing plenty well from 2003 to 2007 when I had this moment. But I said, I haven't clearly articulated where we're going. And that began a process of setting five-year, what Jim Collins would call BHAG strategies for Walker and Dunlop, which we have not only had a reputation of setting and meeting, but as a public company, since we've set them and put them out there for shareholders and then tracked to them almost to the dollar, it's allowed our shareholders to have a really good sense of what we're building the company towards and what their company will look like three years, five years forward, once we've clearly articulated that plan. So that's my story about St. Michael's and the Inn Perry Cabin. Why don't you go back to the idea of writing this book? I love it. I, I can go right back to that moment. It's fascinating. You were there too. Ours was very similar. And so McKinsey brings together leaders for small we go off sites every once in a while. And one of the landmark events is called the Leadership Retreat. And we bring next generation CEOs, folks that might be one, two years out from being CEO together for three days to really soak in what's happening in the world, macroeconomic trends, but also to hear from seasoned CEOs on what is that role like. And we had had one of these sessions in St. Michael's and and Vic and Scott and I were there. And each morning we had kind of a legendary CEO address the group, right? And like you shared in your story, each of them had incredible wisdom to share. But as we looked across the three days and compared notes on Here's what day one said. Here's what the next person said. Here's what the next person. Each of their answers individually was very compelling. And you could see people writing it down and taking it away like you did. But they were all slightly different. And I think in the car ride back to the airport, and you'll know it's kind of several hours to get back back up to the airport, we're saying, well, if I was a participant coming out of this, I would have written a lot of notes, but it would also be a little confusing, right? What really is the answer to being a CEO or not? So we started testing this question in conversations we were having, and we realized that there was a hunger or a thirst out there for almost a guidebook, right? Or a little bit of lessons learned. First of all, what is the job anyway? What actually does it mean to be a CEO? What's the job? And then for those who do it well, what are some of those common traits? things like setting your five-year vision, right? And it turns out there was six of them that we came up with across things. But it was really a chance to gather that input 
and give it back to a broad audience so that we could all learn and pretend like we were at St. Michael's at the end. <laughs> so give a quick summary of what it was to be included in the book, to be one of those 200 CEOs that you all determined were excellence. Absolutely. I mean, there has been some research done on CEOs. You'll see research on calendar analyses and things like that, but it tends to be just the average, right? It's just playing back. Here's what CEOs in general do. We wanted to take a slightly different take and say, for those who do it exceptionally well, is there anything special or different that they're doing? And how do we glean from them? And so obviously had to figure out what does excellence mean? We used three filters. The first was performance, as you would imagine. And so we took the list of everyone who'd been a CEO of the Fortune 1000 in the last 20 odd years. And there's a few thousand of those because companies have had more than one. And we said, first, you had to have outperformed your industry peers and be in the top quintile of performance. And so again, by industry, so we accounted that tech dynamics are different maybe from industrials. You had to be in the top quintile of performance. The second filter was you had to have been in role for at least six years as CEO. And the reason we wanted that was to make sure that the track record could actually be ascribed to you and your tenure, right? You weren't just kind of jumping on board. And frankly, you'd been around long enough that you had to eat your own cooking, right? Some of the decisions you made early days you were now living with and how did that work? And then the third filter was slightly more qualitative, but just as important around reputational risk, some of the behaviors and expectations we would expect of, of an excellent CEO. And so that took the list from several thousand down to 200. With that, we were able to interview, I think we asked 70 and we got 67. And so pretty good turnout in terms of folks that we were able to talk to. And you put some stats in your book, Carolyn, that are quite eye-spinning as it relates to the performance of this group. So, I mean, the CEOs who rank in the top 20% return 2.8 times more return to shareholders. So $1,000 in the S&P index fund gets you $1,600 over 10 years. $1,000 invested with the top 20% CEO gets you $10,000 over that same hold period. And you've got lots of other statistics that show that. And so I guess if you were an investor, do you invest to an industry or do you invest to an individual CEO? I mean, I think, I think the answer is likely both, right? But the big piece that struck us was being excellent as a CEO, to your point, really matters. It makes a meaningful difference. And gosh, I mean, these are hard roles. I'm not going to say that anyone who's playing the role is doing a terrible, I mean, these are complex roles. But the step change of those who really do it well and the breakout performance they're able to drive for their company is accretive not only to their shareholders, but their employees, their customers. It really, really makes a difference. And I think that's why we wanted to say, well, what are those folks doing that's different even from the average CEO. 30% don't make it past the first three years. And there's a huge frictional cost to everyone involved of cycling through CEOs. So I think it, it serves us all well to have folks do the job well and be able to do it over time. I think one of the things that you wrote about, Carolyn, was that you were struck that the top performing CEOs reframed what winning meant for their companies. Can you go into that a little bit further about what does winning mean to these breakthrough CEOs versus, if you will, the not elite CEOs? Absolutely. So there were six parts to the CEO role that we really dove into. And this first one on your role in setting direction, one of the big differentiators is 
to be bold and to reframe what winning means. And that might sound trite. Of course, you need to be bold. But what do they actually do, right? The first one you named, which is from the CEO seat, you have almost a unique opportunity to give the organization permission to dream big and to understand what could be possible. If I take an example, Ajay Banga, when he took over at MasterCard, and in his decade of CEO, they went from 12 billion to over 300 billion, right, in market cap. So a massive step change. When he walked the halls, when he took over, all the coffee cooler chat was about how do we beat Visa? How do we beat Amex, right? That's the game we're playing. We're trying to incrementally eke some market share. And at the time, and again, you have to remember 10 years ago, where we were as an economy, he stepped back and he said, look, most of the world's transactions, 92%, were not happening in credit cards. They were actually still happening in cash. He's like, why are we all over here playing this game of stealing market share in 8% of the market when the real market is all the world's transactions? And he came back and reframed with his organization, our job is to kill cash. Now, that's sort of a funny phrase coming from him when decency quotient is also something, but kill cash was their mantra. But what that did was as CEO, he didn't have to prescribe all the ways they were going to do that. But all the ideas, all the latent opportunities that people had wondered about, but thought, oh, we don't do that. That's not okay for me to think about, were unleashed, right? And they went into online and debit and all these other things. And it gave permission to the organization to think big in a different way. So take that into the anecdote, or if you will, the strategy that Herbert Heiner put in at Adidas, because I think what you just talked about that happened at MasterCard is very analogous to the way that Heiner reset the vision for Adidas as it relates to building great products rather than just branding a brand, if you will. Absolutely. You can imagine when he took over at Adidas, you know, there's these other titans in the industry. There's Nike there, there's Puma, there's all these other companies, and they're each taking their own tack for how to win in the market. And again, he decided, let's not try to compete in the way they're doing it, right, around branding and apparel or all these different angles. He brought it right back, and a number of the CEOs did this, to their deep sense of purpose. Why do we even exist? It's like we exist to help incredible athletes excel. Right. And the way that we do that is by delivering product and science and technology to them to enable them to break through. And so he brought the focus, not, you know, the current equivalent would be not Instagram, you know, follow you know, all these various things. He's like, we're about amazing product. And again, it really focused the organization and helped them differentiate. So the outcome of that strategy was, I believe he was CEO for 15 years. And over that 15 years, the market cap of Adidas went from 3.5 billion to 30 billion or 32 billion. Absolutely. In an incredibly competitive market. Incredibly. And so I read that, the way you all described that was so insightful, I thought, because the way you frame it up, as you just said, was, okay, we should cut costs and produce manufacture for a cheaper price than Nike, or we should go hire Lionel Messi to be the spokesperson. We're going to pay him a huge amount of an endorsement contract because it's all about branding. And instead he went to, let's just make products that our clients want, put customer service at the top with great products. And then the rest sort of happens after that, rather than thinking, if you will, shifting the focus from an internal focus of what can we do at Adidas to what will our clients do for us if we meet their needs. Absolutely. What's the need in the world? What's our, why do we exist? What are we trying to get done and help our clients with? And then all of our strategies just in service of that. 
So take that to Hubert Joy at Best Buy to why do we exist? Because his, if you will, four circles and the concentricity that created what Best Buy did, I thought the way he framed what they did was a really interesting thing that you outline in the book. Absolutely. I mean, Hubert Jolie really led a whole turnaround of Best Buy. And you think about it at the time, there was Best Buy and there was Circuit City, right? And then they've just gone on very, very different paths. And what was it that he did? You know, he had to put some foundational things in place. But again, he, he came back to the customer, right? What is the customer experience, the customer need that we're trying to create? So, for example, they did away with commission sales staff which was essential to the model of that kind of retail. It's like, that doesn't serve the customer, right? This is about us working collectively, not even just as individuals, but as a store and across regions to deliver things that our customers really need. And they did some pretty pretty innovative and shocking things at the time, right? At a time where you could have easily said electronics are going to Amazon, big box retail's dead, right? What are you going to go do about it? He's like, well, we're going to deliver value in store for our customers that that others can't deliver. Yeah. As you outlined his sort of four circles, he has what the world needs, yeah. what you're good at, what you're passionate about, and how you can make money. And yeah, I thought that that was an interesting framing like of figuring out, okay, how do we get in the middle of those four circles and say, all right, we're passionate about this. We're good at that. We'd make money there. But then yeah. the other one, I think that goes back to the Adidas example is what's the world need? I mean, in other words, that, that, that customer centric focus. And I mean, in Best Buy, what you underscored in Best Buy was that up until he stepped in, they really felt like they were the brand. And yet they figured out that their real estate was something that retailers wanted. And if they could sort of outsource the real estate side to it to Best Buy, and then they set up sort of a Apple area and an HP area, and they they allowed Samsung to have their own kind of kiosk inside of Best Buy, which was a significant strategy shift from them sort of saying, well, we are Best Buy. It was really, we're kind of just a reseller for HP and Apple, correct? Absolutely. And for these other incredible brands that didn't have an on-site presence, right? They didn't have a bricks and mortar at the time. And so they became that. Amazing. By the way, those four concentric circles are an interesting lens to use on all kinds of things, including your career decisions, right? If you think about yourself as a leader, right? What am I good at? What do I love? What can I get paid for? What does the world need? I mean, finding things at that intersection, it's just a great filter for a lot of things. Go on that for a moment, because I think one of the things that you write about is the fact that one of the qualities that you saw in these great CEOs was that they were really good at identifying what only they uniquely could do. Absolutely. I mean, that's these jobs are of such tremendous scale and complexity that there is an unending list of things you could get involved in. Right. And so part of this is what's your filter as a leader on What's the work that only I can do that, frankly, you're the scarcest resource. There's one of you, there's 24 hours in the day. What's the highest and best use of your next hour for your shareholders, your customers, your employees, and not feeling selfish or timid about having that criteria, right? And what does that look like? And it's similar filters, right? Where can I add the most value that if I don't do it, no one else can? And everything else, I should be empowering others. Yes, I might be coaching them, bringing it along. But that it's such an important filter as you juggle all of the balls in the air as a a leader. You talked at the beginning as it relates to in St. Michael's, people were sort of taking notes on the what I would call micro strategies or micro habits of the CEOs. So someone gets up and says, this is what I do every day. I've got a this list. I've got this is the way I use my executive team. We have a 
dial in call every morning to kind of share the strategy and it's 15 minutes and off we go. I mean, everyone has sort of their way of managing, but were there, as you did your research on these CEOs, certain qualities or certain micro habits that were consistent across that entire cohort? Absolutely. I think that's why we ended up anchoring somewhat to our surprise on that there are six mindsets that underpin this success. People operationalize them differently, and I'm happy to give examples of microhabits, but these mindsets is what was consistent. So when they think about setting direction, it was the boldness and the courage to reframe, right? As they think about all of the organizational things, right, talent, culture, org design, it was the mindset of, I treat that soft stuff as if it's the hard stuff. So they were treating it with real rigor. They were measuring it. They knew whether they were on track on their talent and culture. It wasn't something outsourced to HR. So again, it was that mindset. And there's one of those for each of these, right? On the the board one, and we can come back to it, is this was probably the one that had the biggest difference between prevailing wisdom as CEOs and, and truly excellent ones. But it was this mindset of how do I help the directors help me in the business, which frankly is very different than I've just got to get through the board meeting and I get to go back to running my business, right? Very different. And so there's a bunch of behaviors that come from that. And so I think each of them held these mindsets and then had quite a lot of intentional discipline about what they did to make sure those were happening in their organization. So when you talk about engaging the board, which was number four on your six qualities, one of the CEOs that you kind of underscore the way that, if you will, he took a distinct tack from his predecessor, was Satya Nadella at Microsoft and how he viewed his board as a real resource and how he's used the board. Just go into that a little bit more, if you would, Carolyn, on, I have a board, which I love. And I, and I, as I read your book, I sat there and said, am I using our board at Walker and Dunlop enough? And, and I pushed it a little bit and I said, I can actually probably go and ask this person to help me on that. And that person helped me on that. And while I think we have a very engaging board, which has lots of transparency, and that's one of the things that you underscore as it relates to management teams and CEOs who have that trusting, transparent relationship with their board of directors. But what did you see Satya do at Microsoft that might be distinct from the way that the Microsoft board engaged previously? Absolutely. And I would say this board piece is the one when we talk to newer CEOs, they're the most surprised by. They're like, I could never do that. That's not the way my board works. And so folks who've been in the role for a while realized, as you say, this level of transparency really helps everyone over time, but it feels different. You think about Satya, right? He was sort of a surprise CEO in many regards, not to mention he had both Bill Gates and Ballmer on his board. So the past two CEOs and frankly founders. So imagine having the two of them over your shoulder as well. You're the brand new CEO. In many ways, he considers himself the first non-founder CEO, because even Ballmer was sort of regarded that way. How do you make a mark? How do you both show confidence and that you have a vision, but also tap into it? I think my favorite quote from him in all of this was, we asked, why is the CEO job lonely? We asked it of everyone. And and he cut through in this very specific way. He's like, I know the answer. Okay, great. (laughs) It's an information asymmetry problem. No one underneath you, meaning your team and your organization, sees everything that you see, right? You're the ultimate integrator that sees all the pieces. But no one above you, meaning the board and shareholders, see everything that you see. You're this single node of integration, and that's lonely, and that's really hard. And so as he thought about his board, he very much was in the mindset of, 
how do I bring them into the tent? How do I make sure that they have enough relevant information about all the pieces going on so that they understand what I'm juggling and they can we can be together in that same perspective, right? But what does that mean? It means you need to be transparent. You need to share things, not the huge board binder, but the very transparent. I mean, Jamie Dimon does this too. The first hour of his meeting, by the way, not the last, the first, he goes in, no notes, pulls out a little handwritten piece of paper. Here's what's keeping me up at night. Here's what happened since last we met, right? Very unfiltered. I might not need a decision from you yet, but I need you to know. So if it hits the fan and I'm back to you in three months, you knew where it was coming from. Satya did the same, right? He also very thoughtful about who are the experts you may have on your board that can be part of your extended thought partnership, right? If you're doing a big deal or you're expanding into Asia or you're doing this, do you have people on your board that bring relevant expertise that's actually helpful for where you're going, right? You don't want to be sitting in a small town with everyone in your board in the same town and you're doing a global expansion strategy, right? It's not going to help you. I was really interested in the book as I was reading that about Satya and and not only the way he works with his board, but also his overall leadership and management style without throwing Steve Ballmer under the bus too hard because he's an incredibly successful and wealthy and successful person. But if you look at the performance of Microsoft under Ballmer and then the, the performance of Microsoft under Nadella, one of the big things that comes back to me is Nadella's humility his attitude of I'm in this seat. It's not me. It's the seat that I sit in that people come to. So do exactly as you so accurately frame it of there's this funnel above you that the board doesn't know everything. And there's a funnel below you that everyone doesn't know what you know. And you're that integrator, if you will, which I thought was a fascinating kind of frame of all of that. But then the way that he carries himself of just, I don't know all the answers and I'm willing to tell you that I don't know the answers. And I can't think of Steve Ballmer and I don't know him personally, but I can't think of Steve Ballmer walking into a board meeting or a management meeting saying, I don't know the answer to this question. Talk for a moment about Satya's, just his humility in the way that he leads. Absolutely. And it was, it was perhaps one of the more surprising traits we noticed across almost all the CEOs we interviewed was this Humility. It may be that the scale and complexity of the roles has gotten so big as well that people just realize you can't possibly know, right? You can't possibly have, you need to lead through leaders. I think for Satya in particular, he took it not only in who he was, but he scaled that to Microsoft, which has been one of the massive shifts he's driven, right? Is the cultural change and the the embracing of, of a growth mindset, you know, because the organization he took over was had some really disruptive behaviors, right? Very siloed, very, a lot of infighting, getting in the way of innovation. And he has spent three, four, five years now relentlessly trying to bring that humility and learning mindset deep into the organization. He talks about the shift from it being a know-it-all culture where the smartest person in the room is who won and who had all the credibility to a learn-it-all culture. How do we actually celebrate learning and humility and asking questions? And he was very he very articulate about these shifts that they would need to bring. Yes, he embodied it himself. And I'm sure part of that was just naturally who he is. But he's also been very deliberate in role modeling it, right? He had, and he admits, he had a bit of a screw up early days as a CEO where he was sitting on an external panel and they asked him, it was about pay equity. And he gave an answer that wasn't a great answer. And it was blown up in the media and all these things. And he came back to both his board and his team and the organization and said, look, I messed up. 
I have a lot to learn on this topic. Help me learn, right? He has one of the most disciplined learning agendas as a CEO I've ever seen. Every month, he has his chief of staff, and he brainstorms a list of ideas of things he wants to learn about. The chief of staff goes out into the world and gathers who are the best thinkers. Now, you can do this if you're Satya, right? They all write up little memos for Satya. He reads them all. He writes notes and says, okay, these three were helpful. This one, I'd love to meet with her. This one, you know, I have a few questions about the footnote of their research. Hmm. And once a month, he blocks, I think it's a half day or a day just to learn. I mean, pretty huge, huge investment. Yeah. So on that, you talk in the book about one of the common features is not as much a to-do list, but a to-be list. Yeah. I love this one. And this is one any leader, anyone watching or, or viewing can, can think about. The phrase came from Michael Fisher, who, who led the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. But there was a number of them who had something similar. Now, Michael took it very literally. He literally prints out, a little old school, prints out his agenda every day. And he looks at all the things he has coming up. And the amount of channel switching that CEOs have to do, right? You might be going from a tough regulatory or legal meeting where you're finding out you're battling litigation to having to walk into a town hall and inspire 3,000 people to maybe going meeting with a customer and closing a big sale. I mean, the, the code switching you're doing all day. So he looks at his agenda and next to each of the items, he writes, well, how do I need to show up in that meeting? I need to be inspiring. This one, I really need to listen. This one, I'll need to have humility. It's not about being disingenuous. He's an incredibly genuine guy, but it's about reminding himself that how he shows up in the meetings as CEO is as important, frankly, as anything he says or does. And you've probably all experienced this, Willie. I'm sure you have. If you walk down the hall with a grumpy face past everyone and working away, suddenly everyone's like, oh, oh no, business is going bad or something's happening. The, the amplification effect of your mood is massive when you're a CEO. And so managing that and thinking about who do I need to be in this moment, this day, this month will set the tone for the whole company. Yeah, I, you know, your book, I love your book as I hope is evident, but I was, I was in a meeting yesterday and I had an incredible team talking about an investment we've made that isn't going great. And I was surprised that, that it's not going great. Uh, it's a small investment and nothing that I ought to stay up at night over, but I was disappointed to hear that it's not going great. And they were asking for more capital and they were asking also for some more resources to it. And I had inside of me this just sort of, I want to make sure everyone knows how disappointed I am that we are where we are. And as the meeting kind of went on, Carolyn, I was thinking that, thinking back to exactly what you wrote about in your book as it relates to how to be rather than the to-do list. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. We've been here before on investments. We'll figure out how to give it either the capital or the resources to get through it. And I and I kind of re rewound the clock and said to the team at the end, we've been here before. We'll figure this out. And it was to be honest with you, a very different framing of the issue from the beginning of the meeting where I sort of felt like I need to show everyone that I'm really pissed off that we are where we are to getting to, I want them all to leave this meeting saying, we're going to get through this. Yeah, it's not great where we are. But that sort of shift in framing of the issue, I'm sure, had the team, I hope, I haven't spoken to anyone after the meeting, but I think this is what came through, was we'll get through this. It's it's not that big a deal rather than just, man, he's really pissed off and I'm kind of bummed out that we got ourselves in this position. 
I love that, right? And you think about the energy that that creates to go and actually want to go and, hey, we can do this. You know, I, I bet there was a lot more productive activity that came after that. Very much so. So the next one is connecting with stakeholders. And I think that D- Doug Baker at Ecolab is a, is a great example of, of how to connect with stakeholders. And, and if you would, Carolyn, talk a little bit about how the list of stakeholders has broadened dramatically over the past several years, but clearly over the past several decades, where it used to be, as long as I meet my shareholder needs, I'm good as CEO. That stakeholder list has gotten a lot bigger and a lot more complex. Absolutely. And a lot noisier, right? And all these things. It's funny. I was actually with Doug two weeks ago for dinner in, in Minneapolis. And, and he was even talking about this and saying he retired just a year ago. And what the CEOs are facing now is even different from a few years ago. So I'll tell his story quickly. And then let's talk about the broader piece. Ecolab's a fascinating one, right? They're industrial cleaning company, right? They go in and clean fast food companies and warehouses and factories and all these kinds of things, right? That's what they do. And when he took it over, it was a much smaller remit company. They were very focused on just just a few products and he saw the broader opportunity. But when you think about the growing pressure of environmental sustainability, right? He was at the crossroads of a company that could have gotten on the wrong side of it. And they cleaned for a living and, and they spent real time as a leadership team saying, Well, if our job is to clean for a living, and we really are serious about that, the broader extension of that is we would actually help the world be cleaner, which wasn't just a cute poster on the wall, but something they came to truly believe as a company. And think about if we took that seriously, again, a purpose statement around creating a cleaner world, that's not just something for recruiting and for marketing, right? What would we do differently in our operations? And it drove very meaningful differences in terms of the materials they were using, their water usage, how they were thinking about, and it actually transformed how they delivered and what they delivered for their customers and opened up a huge amount of opportunity. And they scaled the company, you know, many, many fold during his tenure. But it was this taking to heart the external pressure and stakeholder around environmental sustainability in his, in his action, but making it real. And not just, you know, he had another you know, fabulous quote where he's a fun guy, kind of provocative. You can't do evil from nine to five and then write big checks in the evening, right? And, and he believes that deeply, right? If you really are, are going to stand behind things, that has to be part of your daily work. Now, the broader stakeholder piece is a huge one that I think has, has changed incredibly even over the last few years, right? We've talked a lot about stakeholder capitalism, and I know Business Roundtable has, and it was sort of good in theory. I think in the last few years, people have had to figure out what does that mean to operationalize, right? You think about the pandemic, right? You were making decisions on employee health, the health and welfare of your communities, supply chain, all of these decisions. Then at least, you know, in the U.S., a lot of the the racial and social unrest, do I weigh in on George Floyd or not? What's my stance? Same-sex factor. I mean, tons of social issues. And then you've got Ukraine and Russia. These CEOs are sitting there going, I'm not a geopolitical expert. I'm not a public health expert. But increasingly, and this is why it becomes relevant, employees and consumers are making their employment decisions and buying decisions, especially in younger generations, based on whether a company is aligned to their sense of values. And so Even if we think, hey, that's not our business, people are sort of getting dragged into it. And I think really struggling to think about what is that line, 
right? I mean, you see Disney in Florida and everyone's spooked by that. And they're like, okay, well, maybe that wasn't the line. But I think this is the biggest unknown that CEOs are navigating. And those who are doing it well come back to their purpose. They come back to their why. Why do we exist? What are our values? Who are we trying to be in the world? And they're using that as a rubric, but it's not easy. So number six on the list is managing personal effectiveness. And I was just curious, having studied, well, identified the top 200 and then met with 67 of the 70 that you asked to meet with, what did you learn about managing Carolyn's personal effectiveness from having interfaced with all these people? What's the thing that you changed in the way you run your practice at McKinsey that you learned while you've been studying all these people? Absolutely. And I think both at work and frankly, even just in life, right? But there was, you know, there was two main learnings, probably one we talked about a little bit, which is the idea of your to be list, right? And really being thoughtful about who do I need to be both in this moment, but also in this role, right? If you're stepping into a new executive role, what does your organization need of its leader for this next period of time or this next era? Some of those will be your strengths because it's why you were picked for the job, but some of them might be a real stretch, right? And so do you know the three or four attributes? And so I've been thinking about how do I navigate some of that? How do I help scale things? What does that look like? And those are things that are newer for me, right? I think the second part is managing both your time and your energy. So like the tactics of your calendar. And, you know, this notion of it's not a sprint, right? Because you want to be in the job for a while. It's also not a marathon because you need to be showing wins along the way. So we talk about this notion of managing a series of sprints. And that's something I've really been taking to heart, right? In the next 90 days, what am I hoping to get done? What will I spend my time on? What does that look like? What are my priorities? And then reassessing that over time. I was struck by how deliberate the CEOs were about that. They had their calendars mapped out a year or more in advance with the big rocks. Talk about those sprints. You call them heart paddles, I believe, in the book, where these S-curves, and and you use the Banco Itaú CEO as sort of an example in the book to describe those. Talk about how they used at Banco Itaú the ability to sit there and set these sort of sprints that come one after the other, but you can't, you know, it isn't a marathon in the sense that people do need to be able to rest. And we'll loop this back to the pandemic because that's a kind of a good segue to how people are recovering from the pandemic and changing strategy post-pandemic. But talk for a moment about these heart paddles and these sprints. Absolutely. And I think the heart paddles and sprints at the company level end up being even more scale, right? So sometimes these are multiple year sprints. But if you're going to be CEO for 10 years, there's probably a series of three or four steps along that way. And both Itayu, Lego, a bunch of these folks did this well, where they'd say, okay, for the next two to three years, and the timing depends on industry, right? Here's what we're going to be focused on. You know, in this case, it was they needed to rebuild a foundation, right? They actually needed to come back to their core business and earn the right again to grow and get their house in order. Once they'd done that, then there was a next set of things you could do to, okay, now we're going to extend and we're going to think about what are the more differentiating things we're going to do in the market? Where are we going to take products? Where are we going to, okay, now we've done that for our country. Now we're going to go to the rest of LATAM or the rest of the world. I think DBS in Singapore is a great example. They went from being a middling Singaporean bank to the best in Singapore, to the best in Asia, to one of the best in the world and what they did. And when they first started out and said, we want to be the best in the world, people thought they were crazy, 
But as they go through these series of multi-year sprints, you earn the right and the organization builds the muscle to be able to take on that next, that next journey. Yeah. So one of the things I found interesting when you describe moonshot strategies, you talked previously, Carolyn, about that the, 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 the CEOs to almost a person were bold, kind of ambitious, were able to make those kind of a moonshot strategy, how we're going to get there. But one of the key components to being successful on moonshot strategies was M&A. And the great CEOs on average did one deal a year. That surprised me. I mean, I think a, a lot of people would sit there and say, oh, these great companies just grow organically and that they are in the technology space and they're just creating new products. But to your research, these companies that successfully did it, they've got a very significant sort of M&A muscle of buying companies and integrating those companies. What are the key pieces to having a successful M&A strategy? Absolutely. When you think about the bold moves to get there, M&A for many of these is a really key component in in a programmatic way. So what does programmatic M&A? They weren't betting the whole farm on some huge mega deal. I mean, occasionally they were, but it was actually having a clear vision of what are the new capabilities or business areas we're trying to build and constantly having a filter out for what are potential acquisitions we can do along the way. Again, many, many smaller acquisitions, but regularly every year over time, rather than kind of waiting for some big hockey stick mega deal for, for the most part. And it's something the CEOs were quite involved in personally, right? So setting the parameters for what are the kinds of things we're looking for, what would the criteria be, and then making sure they had the built-in resilience and reserves and and flexibility to take advantage of those deals when they could, right? And and it comes to this point around, as CEO, one of the things you uniquely can do is resource allocation, right? Yes, your CFO is part of that, but as the CEO, you're the one who can say, we're actually pivoting meaningfully a bunch of our dollars, and we're going to put them here, either for an M&A deal or for a big investment. You know, Mari Barra did this at GM as she pivoted towards electronic, you know, electric vehicles and, and green technology. 50% of her R&D budget got pivoted towards that from a standstill, from when they had nothing, and also a huge portion of that towards M&A. So as a CEO, you can make those pivots, and you can also say, what are we not going to do? Because part of freeing up the resource and capacity to do this is to say no and put a pause or roll off projects that no longer make sense. I think just as a stat on that, not a, not a question to you, but I think one of the stats from the book was that those successful companies that ex- execute on the Moonstrat strategy, going back to Mary Barra and the amount of CapEx that she put to electric vehicles, they invested 1.7 times more than the industry average in CapEx. Is, is that, am I yes. correct on remembering yeah. that? And absolutely. And, and yeah. so they put meaningful amounts and even across resource allocation across for BUs, average companies tweak just a couple of percent a year on the budget. It's like plus or minus. These folks would take almost a clean sheet approach and we're not afraid to swing, you know, double digit percent resources around from one BU to the next. So when you talk about M&A strategies, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was culture and how really successful M&A companies understand the importance of culture. And you highlighted one company, I can't remember the name of it, but basically the two companies came together. And if you looked at their mission statement, it said, people are a competitive advantage. And you sort of said, oh, these are similar cultures. But then if you actually peeled it back, one of the people are a competitive advantage in one instance was we trust the employees to go do what they need to do to create great shareholder returns. And the other was more of a, we're going to create the belts and suspenders around everyone to make sure that we don't fail. And that 
as you really kind of dive into that a little bit deeper, Carolyn, you can understand how those are two dramatically different cultures, even though the poster on the conference room wall actually had the same mission statement of people are a competitive advantage. Absolutely. Yes. No, I remember that one vividly. And it's such a good example of when you're thinking about cultural integration, you've got to dig into it, right? Because you're right, the words on the page were shockingly the same and meant completely different things. And they didn't realize it at first, which meant as they were starting to get into their merger, you know, they both thought, oh, we're the same, this will be fine. And then they started making decisions about how they were going to set up teams, how they'd hold people accountable, what it would do. And they were coming up with very different answers. And at first, it actually led to a little bit of bad blood because people thought that they were not living by their word, right? It's like, we thought you believed people were your competitive advantage. You clearly weren't telling the truth because you're doing all these things that aren't what we would do. And there was a whole bunch of assumptions happening. It turns out they just operationalized those principles very differently. And it was only when they talked about it. Otherwise, you know, really was going to erode trust, frankly, and a bunch of dysfunction was starting to happen because they didn't talk about what we actually mean. And it comes back to this notion of mindset. And in a, in a merger, it's not just comparing processes and notes and how we do things and technology. How do we actually think, right? Because if you can align on, here's, here's our approach to management. Here's how we think about what excellence looks like. All the behaviors will flow from that. And it's at that mindset level that it's really important to align. So in the book, you talk about Abraham Wald working with the U.S. military in World War II, looking at the planes that returned from fighting. Will you describe for our listeners, I thought that was fascinating, the work that he did and how relevant it is to, if you will, not looking where all the eyes are going, but where the eyes aren't going. Yeah, I love this. And this is a great lesson for any leader when you think about the value of you being able to pop your head up and kind of see where things are going. So the the airplanes were coming back from, you know, battles during the war and the ones that had survived the battle were coming back. And so all the technicians would look for the damage on the plane to get clues about how can we help the planes be better. And so they noticed, you know, the damage was, you know, this part of the wing or this part of the, okay, so we need to reinforce that. And they started putting extra reinforcement on all the places where the returning planes had holes. And it sort of didn't really make a big difference. And they were trying to figure out why. And it was all we stepped back and said, maybe we're looking at the wrong data. Maybe we shouldn't be, because all those planes, they came back with holes, but they were still able to come back. They still survived. So clearly those holes maybe weren't life or death. They don't, right? We have, exactly. We've got to find out the planes that didn't make it back. Where did they get hit? And that's what we need to reinforce. It's such a great, and it made a huge difference and saved thousands of lives when they did that. But it's a good example of, are you your confirmation bias? And are you looking at just the data you want to look at to prove your point, right? Or is there some other angle, some other way of looking at things that will, that will reveal an insight? And I think as a senior leader, everyone else is so busy in the day-to-day that you have a chance to pop your head up and be like, wait, is there a bigger picture here we're not seeing? It's a really interesting, I mean, I love that anecdote and I love how you frame it as it relates to how leaders and management teams ought to think about, if you will, looking at not where the bullets are, but where the bullets aren't, if you will, for reinforcement. And it reminds me of uh, Sean Foley, who is coming on the webcast next week, was Tiger Woods's coach. And Sean talks a lot about the fact that Tiger famously plays this game of worst ball. So he'll tee off with two balls and he plays the worst of the two. Then he hits two more balls and plays the worst of the two. And Foley talks about the fact that on the, 
on the around the green chipping, Tiger would never put the ball on a good piece of grass. He always would go find the worst place to put the ball, a divot, whatever else, so that he was practicing for the hard shot, not for the easy shot. And it's it sounds obvious when someone is as good as Tiger, but I do think many people, including lots of CEOs, like to, if you will, play from the easy shot. They sit there and say, I can I can do this over and over. And they're not looking for that weak spot and testing the team to look at those weaknesses, because invariably we're all going to be tested on those weak spots. Absolutely. Especially if you think about the amount of volatility right now in the market, right? And everyone's thinking about how do I plan for next year? What's happening with inflation? What's happening with geopolitics? All these things. I do think this is where some scenario planning can be really important. To your point, yes, it's great. Hopefully it'll all go with your plan A. But what's our plan B, our plan C, our plan B? And are we building the resilience now and anticipating what would we do in some of those situations so that we have a game plan when they come up? Some people don't want to be the downer to raise that stuff, but it's good work to do as a leadership team, right? So that you've thought those tough shots through. Was there anything, Carolyn, you you talk about the average tenure of a public company CEO, I think is now six years, might be seven, but I think it's six. Those who get beyond the six years, If you look at their shareholder returns, they're off the charts. And it sort of makes sense. You said 20% fail within the first three years. Average tenure is six years. You find a CEO who's been in the seat for 10, 15, 20 years. Typically, they've gotten over that hump, if you will, and the shareholder returns just start to go. Is there anything that the longer tenured CEOs did or thought that was very distinct from the early end of the spectrum CEOs? Absolutely. And some of them are quite long tenured. I mean, Ed Green, who we interviewed, has been a CEO for 26 years across three different companies, right? So some of them are also these kind of serial CEOs. By the way, he claims, he says he's only made 15 decisions that have really mattered in those 26 years, which is fascinating, right? I'm sure there's lots in between, but to the notion of what's your role that only the CEO can do, part of this is knowing when to intervene. I do think there's a natural selection bias, right? If you've if you've done well enough to last six plus years, you're probably doing a pretty good job. But I also think these folks have learned a lot. So most of them looked back and they said, yes, these are my mindsets now. Here's what I do now. But show yourselves a little grace because I certainly didn't have those when I started. So this learning mindset, I would say, you know, learning to be really transparent with the board learning to be ruthlessly filtered on what they get involved in and what they don't from a personal time point of view, really working through their team and leading through leaders, trying to do everything versus doing everything themselves. These are all things that they've learned, right? And and the ones who didn't learn it, you know, kind of don't make it that far because at some point, that's what you need to be able to do this sustainably over time. I think the other piece that many of them raised, though, is knowing when it's time to go. And actually being okay with that as well, right? And okay with it on two dimensions. One is having a really clear-eyed view of what does the company need of its CEO in the next era? And am I the right person for that? And having conversations with the board about that from year one or two of your tenure, right? So don't wait until you're, this is a constant conversation with the board. And the second piece, maybe a little bit more personal is making sure that you don't get so wrapped up in the job that you personally are afraid to not have it anymore, right? And that you'll still be relevant in a life beyond. And there's some people who hang on because they don't know what else they would do, right? And so you've got to stay human. 
it reminds me a lot of Arthur Brooks and what Arthur Brooks has talked about in his book, Strength to Strength and Finding well, Meaning in the Back Half of Your Life. But he, he yeah. talks about these people who have this huge success early in their life, and then they're hanging on to it too late. And when you get to 75 years old, there are these two massively divergent paths. And one of those people who can sort of jump to the upward trajectory of letting go of what made them so successful and gave them such joy. And then there are those people who hold on to it and they take this downward spiral because they're not as relevant. They don't have the job. They don't have the brand that they used to have. And they hold on to it and it essentially ruins their lives. Absolutely. I'm in the midst of reading that book. I think there's a ton it's, to be It's so good. Here. I have to tell you, it's so yeah. good. Arthur is is an incredibly insightful writer and lecturer and what have you. Carolyn, you also talk about acting like an owner and that sort of mindset of I'm an owner of the business. But is there any correlation to ownership and success? And let me just give one quick sort of anecdote before I have you answer that question and what the data tells you. The investment bank that had more partners as owners of the company, to my knowledge, was Lehman Brothers. And so everyone sits around and goes, oh, a line interest between management and ownership, and you're never going to have sort of problems because they act like owners. And as we all know, <laughs> the, the greatest failure on Wall Street ever was Lehman Brothers going down. And for Dick Fold and the other managers at, at Lehman Brothers, a massive loss to them. They had every incentive to manage it well. They didn't. And so the, the question I have is, understanding the mindset of acting like an owner, but does actual ownership amount, percentage, personal net worth invested in the company actually produce greater returns? That's a fascinating question. I'll admit I haven't done the analytics on that. It's a good one. So I'm going to take that away as a to-do, but we did get into it with several of the CEOs. One thing by design, we didn't over-index on founder CEOs. We have a few in there, Reed Hastings and a couple of others. We purposely didn't there because there's a there's an extreme version of ownership, which is you're the founder, the owner, you know, disproportionately own most of the stock, control the board, which frankly gives you an amount of control that that is just not relevant for other CEOs. So we kind of didn't didn't include them. You know, when you think about even in that way, though, the risk is that they become so powerful that no one's telling them the truth anymore. And that you can get a little bit into your own head in your own bubble, right? And do you actually have enough feedback loop to know whether what you're doing is right? I think in terms of broad ownership, again, I haven't looked at the, the incentive numbers, but this notion of whatever role you're in, and maybe this is a tie back to your broader audience, all these CEOs said the best time to start thinking and acting like a CEO is in whatever job you're in now. Right. And so there is this notion of whatever executive role you're in now, there's no reason why you can't start thinking and acting like a CEO, which may or may not be the same as owner. Right. But thinking boldly about the group or function you're leading, really being thoughtful about your team and the culture and its ability to deliver, thinking about your stakeholders, thinking about your own leadership, all of those mindsets and lessons learned can apply to any leadership role. And if that's what acting like an owner looks like, I think that can produce tremendous results. The incentives can produce all kinds of separate perverse things, but act and think like an owner, think like a CEO, I think gets you to a good place. So take that one step, if you will, further. Someone who is in the beginning of their career and is aspiring one day to be in the C-suite, to have the big job. What advice, having studied these leaders, would you give him or her as it relates to what to do in their career, as it relates to either 
maniacally focusing on getting there one day, not focusing on it, how they would act with colleagues, how they would learn, what would be kind of the cheat sheet for you're just coming out of undergrad or business school and you're bounding into your career and you want to understand how you can get to that corner office. Absolutely. I mean, maybe maybe two different lenses. One is obviously job number one is to excel in whatever your current role is. And it seems obvious. I thought you were going to say join McKinsey and become a consultant, yeah. but we'll I'll hold <laughs> yeah. off the public service no, announcement no. there. Anyway, sorry, I jumped in. Keep going. <laughs> Doing an excellent job in your current role with some of these CEO mindsets, right? So thinking boldly, navigating and aligning and mobilizing your stakeholders, thinking of all of these pieces as a resource to help your organization live its purpose, right? Whichever function or team you're driving, I think that's job number one, and there's no reason you can't start now. I think the second parallel piece, if you have aspirations beyond, is definitely not to get completely distracted and obsessed with that. Frankly, it's a distraction and other people don't love it if they know that that's what you're trying to do all the time. But I do think there's some smart things you can be doing the learning mindset that we talked about, right? What are all the things you can be learning? Are you seeking out opportunities? You know, if you're a senior, senior leader, but not yet CEO, you could join a board. You could learn what it's like to be on that side of the table, right? You can be part of a cross-enterprise initiative team that's getting you out of your silo. Anything you can be doing to broaden your perspective, because I think the biggest surprise that new CEOs have is not the setting the business direction strategy team stuff, It's the other three. It's managing the board or whatever your senior folks are, right? It's getting, thinking about all your stakeholders. It's elevating your own leadership. Those are all things that you can start to practice and find opportunities for, but learning mindset all the way through and it never stops. Well, it's very clear that you have an incredible learning mindset. You and your colleagues, Scott and Vic, have written an incredible book in CEO Excellence. I'm deeply appreciative of you spending an hour with me and talking about all this. And uh, I am going to take you up on your offer for me to loop back at some point and talk about some of this stuff that I've learned personally from reading your book and trying to start to implement some of it at Walker and Dunlop. So thank you, Carolyn, and really appreciate you taking the time. You're so welcome. What an energizing start to the day. I love this series that you're doing and, and have learned a lot from you. So thanks so much. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We'll see you again next week with Sean Foley, Tiger Woods, former golf coach who now coaches a bunch of other PGA players. I will tell you that if you show up thinking that Sean has the answer for your particular golf swing, you will be greatly disappointed. But he will talk about what the mindset of a winner and a winning golfer is. And it's a fascinating discussion. So thanks, Carolyn. Have a great day. 